Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to Deconstructive Criticism. My name is Aaron Flam, and today we're talking to Professor Charles Grobe. Dr. Grobe has been the director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Harbour UCLA Medical Center since 1993. And even for a specialist on mood and anxiety disorders, he's extraordinarily sympathetic and calming. Professor Grobe is a believer in the self-medication hypothesis of substance abuse which basically means that he thinks that if someone is using or abusing a substance, it might be because of a biological or psychological lack that the subject tries to compensate for. His research has included the first FDA-approved Phase One study of the physiological and psychological effects of MDMA, a multinational collaborative study of the Amazonian plant hallucinogen decoction ayahuasca in Brazil, and a pilot investigation of the safety and efficacy of psilocybin, that's magic mushrooms, in the treatment of anxiety in adult patients with advanced stage terminal cancer. And on top of everything else, he's an expert on hallucinogenic literature and the author of the book Hallucinogens, a reader, which provides a good overview on the topic in case this discussion prompts you to find out more. Now please, enjoy. So how did you come in contact with hallucinogens to begin with? Well, growing up uh, in the 1960s, you couldn't avoid the issue. It was there. And um, I went off to college in 1968. I went to Oberlin College in Ohio, which was a very progressive school. And I promised my mother I would not experiment with drugs. That was a concern of hers. That was when I left for school. But by the time I came back uh, my freshman year, I had had ample experience and ample ex- opportunity to uh, experiment with my peers and uh, was just just fascinated. And so my freshman year in college was when I first uh, had a, an experience with a hallucinogen. I, I however, quickly realized that... Uh, Taking a drug like LSD in a dormitory room uh, was not the optimal environment 
for this the, taking these kinds of compounds. So uh, after a couple of years, I ceased my personal use, but remained fascinated with the topic and continued to read every opportunity I had. And ultimately, it uh, helped to determine my career path. I, uh, When I was in my early 20s, I had dropped out of college. And uh, uh, actually, my father was very concerned about what he perceived as my lack of direction and uh, told me that uh, when I d- decided what to do with my life, he wanted to know, he wanted me to call him. He didn't care what time of the day or night it was. He wanted me to call him. So I, I had this job at that time as a research assistant at, on a dream research study at the Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. And my job was to stay up all night, monitor EEGs, identify when there was a dream, wait for the end of the dream, and then wake the the dreamer or the sleeper who was in a sensory deprivation chamber, wake him or her up on an intercom and, and then ask them for to report their dream. And I recorded the dream. But to, to stay up all night, I needed engaging material to read. And one of the doctors there had collected just about every article written up to that point in the professional literature on psychedelics. And I just devoured all this material. And uh, one night I had this uh, epiphany. I knew what I wanted to do. It was three in the morning, but my father had told me to call him regardless of the day or of the time of day or night. So uh, I called him, woke him from a deep sleep. And uh, once I suffic- he sufficiently woke, I told him I had decided what to do, that I thought psychedelics were fascinated, uh, fascinating. I wanted to investigate them. And there was so much to learn about the brain the mind-brain interface. There was so much to learn about mental illness. And there, there were these extraordinary models that one could utilize to treat people who were not responding to conventional treatments. And he thought for a, a moment or two, and then he said, well, son, there may be something to what you say, but no one will listen to you unless you get your credentials. So at that point, I knew I had to go back to school and uh, get my credentials. And my path was... Uh, to do pre-medical studies and then go to medical school and then ultimately train in psychiatry. Of course, by the time I got out of medical school, uh, it was impossible to conduct any uh, approved research with psychedelics because they had become so taboo. And uh, so, but I just kept, uh, you know, going through my training and becoming a physician. First training in medicine and then in psychiatry and then in child psychiatry. But continued to read as much as I could. Um, every month, I remember in medical school, I had this uh, ritual. I went to the medical library at the beginning of the month when the new issue of Index Medicus arrived, which this is before the age of uh, the internet. So uh, you wanted to know what was out there and, and, and published in the world of medicine and science, you go to Index Medicus. And I would look up terms such as lysergic acid, diethylamide, or mescaline, or hallucinogen, and there was generally nothing of great interest because research around the world had been repressed and stopped and put on ice. Yeah. So, uh, but I just kept, I, and I, I found a lot of gratification in being a physician, helping people. I, I liked the work I did, but maintained my interest, stayed in academia, and uh, first at Johns Hopkins, then at the University of California, Irvine, and then at, at UCLA, and at Harbor UCLA, um, there, then in the early nineties, I, I had my opportunity to, uh, to first conduct, uh, uh, this, this research. I see. So you not only broke your promise to your mother, you made it into a career to break that promise. Uh, yes. You, you could say that. You could say that. She, she, uh, 
You know, she she uh, did not have a great comfort level with what I was doing, but she was a loving mother and a good mother and always supported me. My father, though, um, he uh, uh, he actually uh, he had some interest in this area. And I'll tell you a story. He um, in the early seventies, uh, uh, shortly after I told him what I wanted to do with my life, and at which point I was planning to go back to uh, to school. To, I went to Columbia to do my pre med studies. I told my father I was going to attend the lecture of a Mexican psychiatrist who was visiting New York. His name was Salvador Roquette, and he had a uh, a very unique uh, system of administering psychedelics. So I took my father to the um, uh, talk, and afterwards we went up to speak with Dr. Roquette, and uh, my father told Dr. Roquette that, oh, it just so happens next month I'll be in Mexico City at the medical school giving a lecture. So Dr. Roquette said, oh, here's my card. Come and visit me. So my father says, sure, I'll visit. And I thought, oh, he's never going to visit, especially because he's traveling with my mother. Mm -hmm. She would never allow this. But as it turned out, they visited Dr. Raquette at his clinic. He showed them around, explained to him his treatment model, and uh, said, you know, just so happens tonight we're doing a group session. Why don't the two of you join us? And my mother right away said, oh, I couldn't do that. I have four children meaning Mm -hmm. too many responsibilities to lose her mind and not be able to retrieve it. My father, though, without missing a beat, said, uh, okay, what time? (laughs) My mother was furious with it. So Dr. Raquette said, uh, well, if you you come, don't eat anything the rest of the day. My mother was furious with my father. uh, So... And he said, I won't go. And to prove the point, they went out and had a big meal, after which he said, I think I am going to go. So in spite of her protestations, he went to Dr. Raquette's clinic, and he, along with 20 of Dr. Raquette's Mexican patients, was administered mushrooms. My father said he had to peel the cow dung off of the mushrooms. So these were quite fresh and from the natural state. And Dr. Raquette's model was one of sensory overload. He was really aiming to shatter your psychological defenses to have kind of the primal experience. So there was very intense music, and he had projected on three different walls in the room three different films, silent. But on one, one wall, there were beautiful aesthetic scenes from beautiful natural you know, uh, you know, pictures and the beauties of nature. On another wall was documentary footage of warfare, death, destruction, bodies in the street. And on the third wall, there was projected pictures of erotomania of any variety you could imagine. And the other patients were emoting very loudly and moaning and wailing and screaming. And my father started to feel sicker and sicker. And so he dragged himself to the bathroom where he retched his guts out, collapsed on the floor, thought he was dying. One of Dr. Raquette's assistants saw that he was missing from his area, so went to find him, found him in the bathroom, dragged him back to his spot on the wall, where my father tells me later he then had a vision of a a powerful vision of a people dressed in very primitive desert clothing, walking in a desert, one behind the other, connected from one to the other by their umbilicus. And he realized these were his ancestors. And it was this very profound vision that provided, I think, great insight to him, a a connectedness to his own personal and ancestral past. 
He never again took a psychedelic, but he loved to tell me the story, which I, of course, asked repeatedly over the years for him to, to retell. And he would kind of, uh, I think, uh, reflect back on this remarkable experience and unique experience that allowed him a, a glimpse into another realm, into a transcendent realm that uh, I think really changed him fundamentally as a person. Prior to that, he was very you know, intense, hard-driven, type A personality, you know, just driven to succeed. And after that, he, he, he really did mellow quite a bit, had, I think, more of a heart-opening experience than was more connected, connected to those around him. You know, he kept his same job. He was a professor of medicine and a chief of medicine, and he was extremely effective at what he did. But there were some fundamental changes in his personality. And I think it also allowed him to better understand what I wanted to do. And it allowed him to be really, I think, quite supportive. As long as I, for him, it was as long as I had my credentials and did this work the proper way through the system. And for me, that's what I've done. Yes, you certainly have. Um, you're also the author of um, this little book, Hallucinogens, a Reader. Yes. Uh, and I haven't read it, I must oh. admit, but I have read most of the things you quote in that. Okay. I am also a nerd, you see. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fellow travelers. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, yesterday you mentioned, um, and this is the reason why I was so nervous about interviewing you, because I don't know where to start. Should I talk about your experiments or should uh -huh. I talk about your extensive knowledge in hallucinogenic readings, or, I mean, um, texts? Uh -huh. um, because yesterday you mentioned something that I don't always hear. You mentioned the Tassili Plains of Algeria, uh -huh. seven to thousand nine, uh, seven to 9,000 years ago. Right, right, yes. right. What, what happened there? Well, we know what, what was occurring there so many thousands of years ago because of archaeological finds, specifically uh, cave paintings depicting a, uh, a shamanic practitioner. And, and in the cave painting, there were mushrooms uh, attached to his, to his limbs, uh, down his torso. The shaman also wore a mask in the shape of a, a, a beehive, a cone-shaped mask and the significance of the the bee cone was that honey was a preservative and to preserve the mushrooms one, one you know one would put them in honey but these mushrooms depicted on the on this painting along the 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 the, the, the shaman's um, body were i mean they're unmistakably mushrooms and uh, you know other evidence has pointed to um the fact that around the world over millennia there were there were mushroom cults or or the indigenous people would utilize psychotropic plants that grew in the area as part of their um spiritual belief system as part of their uh their healing system and uh there's no denying that these plants were of extraordinary value uh to early man and and really helped contribute to forming the bedrock of what became human civilization even though their use was eventually repressed by the advent of uh you know the modern state and uh uh but uh, there's been a, we, we've kind of re recovered much of this knowledge in uh, over the last half century. Yeah, because uh, do you believe in uh, the stoned ape theory of evolution? By the way, 
the stone, the, the, the Terence McKenna theory. Yes. <laughs> that the apes started to uh, ingest uh, psychoactive mushrooms and felt compelled to uh, somehow or other articulate the visions they saw. I mean, it's a compelling theory. I, I, I don't know. And it does connect well to the story of the apple in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, 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 yeah. Doesn't yeah. it? I mean, uh, Gordon Wasson talks extensively about right, this. Right, 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 right. That the... Uh, and, and you know, ingesting from the uh, from the the tree of knowledge, you know, was uh, you know breaking some deep taboo and cast cast the Adam and Eve out and in, out into the wilderness. Yes. Yeah. So on the plains of Africa, at least we have one one piece of proof that there has been mushroom cults in human history. Right. Right. And right. Uh, and you said in your lecture last night also that psilocybin mushrooms... Uh, right, specifically, uh, with, containing the alkaloid uh, psilocybin. I, I, I believe you said there is at least 186 known right. species. known species, probably more by this time. Yeah. Yes, containing uh, psilocybin. And they seem to move with human colonization. That's right. That They seem to follow where humans, areas where human inhabit. They are also... Associated with the domestication of cattle, they 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 are corporophilic. They grow on cow dung. They seem to be attracted to the nutrients provided in such a medium, and uh, you know the 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 uh, you know the proof is irrefutable that uh, the, these mushrooms exist, and they've been they've been utilized uh, throughout. I think human history. Why would they not be? If yes. they were growing in a particular area, people, particularly indigenous peoples, would tend to uh, test out the local p- plant material. They would determine which plants might have nutritional value, which plants were toxic and to be avoided. And then these remarkable plants, which seem to induce visionary experience, why would they not uh, look into the range of effects and uh, harness their power for their own tribal needs so these um, these uh, cults and rituals were spread out throughout heathendom all over the world probably. oh i believe so i yes. believe so you know you know in some areas of the world there is a richer colonization of psychotropic plants particularly in um, central and south america other areas less so but there is there's evidence of psychotropic plants uh, throughout the world and uh, and no doubt the indigenous people of those regions knew exactly what the range of effects were and and learned how to harness their power yeah well uh, we are currently in a country where you know we have both samic people up north and right. and that, they are known for having used at least amanita muscaria that's right. That's right. That's uh, right. And the Vikings love, love uh, the Silosybe similansiata. We call it topsletskivling. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And they used to put it in liquor and yes, let, and let that's it right. be there for. That's a, right. And then when you take right. a shot, it, right. it really mellows you out. Yeah. The the German writer Christian Rach talks about uh, archaeological finds of the beers that the uh, the pagan peoples of the Germanic states before uh, the Roman conquest and. The Christianization that these uh, these alcoholic beverages uh, also contained uh, evidence of uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms. Yes, uh, older uh, well, in older times, people didn't really care about mixing drugs. No, or, or they actually cared, but they wanted to mix drugs. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, right. And then with 
the the coming of Christianity, I suppose, uh, the repression of right. hallucinogens started. Well, the, uh, the coming of Christianity was a death knell for the uh, you, you know the, the the pagan religions and the uh, the use of uh, psychoactive plants, I, either the old rituals used by the pagan peoples or moving in, into the uh, the Middle Ages and beyond the uh, the repression of the use of hallucinogenic plants by by Europeans, particularly by midwives, and the horrible persecution of midwives who use psychoactive plants as part of their, their healing. Of, yeah. So, um, they yeah. were uh, termed witches, I they, suppose. They, they were identified as witches, and because of their behaviors, they were deemed heretics, and they were often... Uh, uh, treated very punitively with the harshest punishments of the Inquisition, including torture and death. It was quite brutal, and in parts of Europe, enormous percentages of the female population were actually put to death. There was a shortage of women at various times in the uh, 1500s, 1600s. And uh, and their association with uh, the psychotropic plants were deemed as proof of their heresy. Because uh, ingesting these plants were considered to be in liaison with the devil. The or, devil. Yeah. They were diabolical, absolutely. And so it's not only in the New World that the Europeans, particularly the, the, the Spaniards, identified uh, use of psychotropic plants as heresy. It was also happening in the Old World, in Europe. Yes. Uh, that's you, a piece of history that's often forgotten. There was a... Uh, a uh, a writer from the 19th century named Michelet, Jules Michelet, who wrote, I think, extensively about the, uh, the you know, the uh, the treatment of the uh, of women in general and midwifery in particular, and how they were repressed and and often brutally murdered because of their their activities. It was a terrible, misogynist time where the uh, the church was at the forefront, and I, I would also say with the collusion of the male physician class who may have resented the competition that the midwives re- you know represented yeah no and that in 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 this country it's been obvious if you if you look back a few like a hundred years to when we introduced the we now have a state monopoly pharmacy or now we don't again but we mm-hmm. used to for almost a hundred years have a state monopoly and when you look at how uh, you know, the medical profession tried to force out all these little wise women and wise right. men in, in right. each village mm-hmm. because That's right. they could usually make, you know, either the hallucinogens or the amphetamines. Right, <laughs> yes. right, 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 right. And they were competition. Yeah, they you were. You know, the, uh, the physician class wanted to dominate uh, the market. Yeah. And, and they've done a good job of it. They have indeed. <laughs> uh, and then you moved in and you mentioned briefly yesterday the Florentine Codex. Could you just please explain to my listeners what, what that is? It is, uh, you know, Bernardino de Sahara. Right, right. Yeah, so the year 1616, the laws of the Inquisition were deemed applicable to the New World. And uh, it was declared that uh, any native persons, or really anyone, including Spanish settlers, who dared to utilize the the, the rich hallucinogenic uh, plants that were available and in wide use in native ritual, that anyone who dared to use these would be punished by the rules of the Inquisition, and including uh, execution, horrible torture followed by execution. So it was a, a way to repress native culture. It was also a way to assure that the native Spaniards would not stray from their 
Christian faith and uh, engage uh, native belief systems because this was deemed, you know, quite taboo and heretical and uh, and threatening to the, uh, the, the, the 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 authorities. Of course, it was. I mean, if the priest is the only channel to right. God, and there's a That's mushroom right. growing outside right. the church right. that can. Right. In early Christianity, there was a demarcation where it was deemed uh, 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 direct access to the spiritual realm was no longer accessible. Instead, uh, the, the fact that there might be a spiritual realm would be accepted on faith and yes. faith alone, not by direct experience. Well, there might be a shortage of shrooms, you know, you can't share with everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, you can cultivate that. Nowadays. Nowadays, you can. Yeah. Yeah, In the old days, people didn't know. No, no. They thought they were given birth by thunder. Right. Because, you know, they weren't like the flowers. That's right. That's right. But, uh, you know, it's harder to eradicate plants than it is to eradicate people or groups of people. Obviously. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, you've all also devoted a lot of your life to actual uh, STEM research. Yes. And uh, your first uh, famous experiment, I think, was on MDMA. Right. In the early 1990s, we submitted a protocol to the FDA asking for permission to treat a a patient population with terminal cancer, uh, with overwhelming anxiety and depression, with an MDMA treatment model. They responded that it was premature to to work with a patient population no one that that there had yet to be a phase one study with normal volunteers. Of course, there had been no phase one study with normal volunteers because none had been allowed. In part because of the uh, uh, the allegations that MDMA was a neurotoxic substance, we were quite skeptical that there was MDMA neurotoxicity. We felt that the uh, that the evidence was quite flawed. The the research designs were flawed to to yield a particular result. There was questionable interpretation of data. Conclusions we felt were erroneous. So we challenged the whole neurotoxicity premise. But the um, the FDA said uh, we're not going to allow you to treat a patient population. But if you come back to us with a new protocol looking at a normal volunteer, and we didn't think it was going to be possible to look at normal volunteers because of the neurotoxicity concerns, but they. They, I think we're also quite unimpressed with the neurotoxicity data. They encouraged us to come back with a new protocol. We did. We got approval to run the – it was the first study, uh, above-board sanctioned study, allowed to evaluate the range of effects, both psychological and physiological, of MDMA in normal uh, adult uh, human volunteers. And how did that go? Fine, fine. Our, our individuals – tolerated the the experience quite well. Uh, I'd say with the exception of two, two of my subjects had hypertensive reactions. One, this was an illustrative point. It was a young man who was in for his third treatment session. I knew he had had two other experiences with MDMA that he had tolerated just fine. On the third occasion, he had a hypertensive episode. In about, a, about an hour, his blood pressure went from 120 over 80 to about 200 over 110, which had me quite concerned. So I, I said to him, you know, something has got to be different. So he explained that we, we started the treatments early in the morning, and the subject, to get to the hospital early, he stayed at a friend's house who was near the hospital. His friend had a cat. My subject was allergic to cats. So the, the, the friend of the subject said, 
and, and the subject started to have breathing problems that morning because of the cat. So his friend said, why don't you try some of my asthma medication to help with your breathing? Well, it helped, but the subject came in and didn't feel it was important to tell us that he had been on a new medication that because we had asked him earlier and he had said no medication. So it was a drug interaction. So that's a, I, I think, an important kind of safety issue that people need to understand that drug interactions may be problematic and they need to be very careful and scrupulous about, uh, you, you know, other medications that they may be taking. And the other um, subject was our, he was our oldest subject. You know, I used to call him my elderly subject, but now since since he, I'm actually older now than he was then, I've changed him to my late middle age subject. <laughs> All right. So he, he just had labile blood pressure and it just shot up, you know, rather, you know, somewhat unexpectedly, but we managed to treat it effectively. Not, neither subject experienced any, any lasting harm, but it did, uh, it, it did, you know, make me somewhat anxious and was a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a telling point that uh, one has to monitor these experiences very carefully. And there are potential uh, medical risks, particularly for a drug like MDMA. Um, but there is no neurotoxicity. No neurotoxicity. We, we, we feel that was entirely overblown and the result of uh, very flawed research in the service of a political agenda fostered by, um, really, by... Uh, Liars. Yeah, by, by liars and by vested interests within uh, within the uh, federal health and research authorities. Yeah. They, they, one thing these neurotoxicity investigators received was lavish funding from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which had an agenda to demonstrate that um, that MDMA was a neurotoxic substance. I once approached the former head of NIDA to ask, why wouldn't you consider look examining a, uh, a an MDMA treatment model, uh, particularly for patients who didn't respond well to conventional treatments? And he responded by saying that uh, they were not in the business of supporting uh, research that would identify good things about bad drugs. So these were bad drugs, so they were taboo and not to be allowed. But I, I must also mention that the regulatory agencies uh, and the people at the FDA were very open and receptive and reasonable and willing to grant us permission to do human research. And you know, ultimately, the whole neurotoxicity uh, perspective was thoroughly debunked. And in many respects, the neurotoxicity researchers um, – uh, shot themselves in the foot. In the early 2000s, they published a paper in Science, one of the mo world's most prestigious journals, that not only does MDMA in the uh, monkey model they were using induce serotonergic uh, neurotoxicity, it also causes dopaminergic neurotoxicity, the implication of which is that uh, all of these young uh, MDMA users are going to uh, induce Parkinson's disease, which involves dopamine degeneration and there was a uh, headlines in, across the world that MDMA causes Parkinson's well not too long after it became evident that these monkeys were not actually injected with MDMA instead they had been injected with methamphetamine from bottles that had been labeled MDMA and you expect methamphetamine to cause dopamine damage. Yeah. So then how did that happen? Well, the investigators blame the company that made the research grade 
drug, and the and the company, the chemical company, says no, they have too many uh, safety features and, and quality control features in place for this to have ever occurred. And the answer has never been determined as to who was responsible. But at the end of the day, it really did cause people to take. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take another look at the whole MDMA neurotoxicity a position and realized that it was not what it was, had been built up to be and that while MDMA may have some inherent medical risk, particularly for vulnerable people, it was not a causative agent of neurotoxicity, not by a long shot. And in fact, in recent years, there's been some very, very good uh, human research with MDM, using an MDMA treatment model for people with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder and, and getting excellent results, far superior than conventional treatment models using SSRI antidepressants. So um, you weren't satisfied with the results of this study, which is uh, getting a lot of neurotoxicity biologists to shoot themselves in the foot. Right. Uh, and then you moved on to ayahuasca. But, but, right, yeah. but before we, we go into that, I'd like to ask you, so uh, this MDMA uh, treatment was used for post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. And, um, was it used primarily on military personnel? or? Well, I, the um, this was Michael Mithoffer from South Carolina, his study. They, they Initially, they worked um, with a number of um, uh, policemen, firemen, uh, victims of assault, w- women who had been raped. Uh, subsequently, he's had some opportunity to work with, with veterans and has even engaged the Veterans Administration in the possibility of working within the VA system to help to do at least conduct some research looking at uh, uh, vets who have been traumatized by their uh, war experiences. And as it uh, stands now, if you look at the research and the evidence out in the world, does it look as if though MDMA is going to be included in treatments against post-traumatic stress well, disorder? certainly they're establishing the case for more wider-scale research studies. I mean, we're not at the point yet where sufficient numbers of people have been studied, but we're coming to that point. An organization called MAPS, which has funded the MDMA, most of the MDMA work, um, has... Uh, it really is on the threshold of starting what is what is called a phase three study, which would be multi-site, many sites around the country working off of the same protocol, and then in, in, in so doing, you know, develop, you know, examine and uh, and uh, document the treatment response to several hundred subjects. 
So it's it's a matter of developing numbers of people who are going to be treated before it can be established as an acceptable treatment. I understand. And then you moved into ayahuasca. Right. Right. And how right. did that come about? How did it, how, how did my ayahuasca research come about? Well, really through my friend Dennis McKenna, uh who uh I met him this summer. Oh right? yeah, well, yes. Dennis is quite quite a character. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> quite, quite, a very good friend and a very lo- long-term friend who in the 1980s along with his brother Terence uh y- you know had gone down to the Amazon basin in South America had had a significant degree of ayahuasca experience and Dennis came Dennis is a, a kind of a hardcore scientist, and he became really motivated to explore the, uh, uh, you know, the effects of ayahuasca in humans. So he spoke with me about putting together a, a protocol. He had some connections in Brazil to a uh, Brazilian uh, ayahuasca religion called the UDV, the Unión de Vegetal. Uh, Dennis needed a uh, psychiatrist and. Uh, and someone with academic credentials, and I told him, I'm definitely your man. So together we uh, we created a protocol that we took to Manaus in the in the north of Brazil, in the Amazon, and we uh, we conducted a uh, fairly extensive uh, psychiatric medical evaluation of uh, long-term members of the UDV who who participated at least twice monthly in group rituals using where ayahuasca was used as a psychoactive sacrament. We had a matched number of um, of non-ayahuasca exposed controls, and we worked both groups up along a number of different parameters, medically and psychologically, and neuropsych testing, looking at memory and cognition, personality testing, uh, di- psychiatric diagnostic testing, uh, and with the ayahuasca group alone, I did life story interviews, really ascertaining. Uh, I asked them basically three questions. I said, uh, how did you first come to uh, experience ayahuasca? What was your first ayahuasca experience like? And how has it impacted your life since? And we also had it for each of the ayahuasca uh, religion members, we had... Um, uh, so we studied them under the acute effects of ayahuasca. So we had experiment. We had uh, in the in in the context of their religious temples, we we created a little mini uh, medical clinic where we had people with indwelling intravenous catheters, uh, electrocardiograms. They were administered the ayahuasca by a maestri or a religious leader, saying the religious incantation. They would sit in a chair, and we would draw blood every twenty minutes and check blood pressures every thirty minutes and had EKGs going and uh, looked at uh, pupillary diameter and other, other parameters and... Um, Destroying people's trips in general. Oh, it was... <laughs> it was they, 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 I have to hand it to our subjects. They were heroic to endure what we put them through. Thank but yeah, the UDV, has, they, they had strong belief in science. In, in fact, they date their... Um, the genesis of their church to a to a mythological founder who was actually King Solomon, who in their in their mythology came from uh, uh, from the Middle East to the New World to collect the highest grade uh, timber to use in the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And when in the rainforest, Solomon discovered that these two plants, which when taken by themselves are entirely not 
biologically active, but when when brewed together into a decoction, induce powerful visionary states, which identify, they identify as ayahuasca. That's so. The UDV believed in science. They also needed. Um, they they were under some political attack, and they uh, what was be important for them to to have a scientific demonstration of the, of the safety of their psychoactive sacraments. So they were very gracious hosts and allowed us to do all sorts of things, including installing intravenous ca- you know catheters and drawing bloods you know, f- f- with frequency during ayahuasca experience. Well, if I remember my Old Testament correctly, the, the, the wood that was uh, taken to construct the first temple, at least, was taken from the cedars of Lebanon. Uh-huh. But, but, um, <laughs> and I think I do remember my right. Old Testament correctly because I had a very strict upbringing. Okay. Uh, but, um, uh, but it is interesting to note because this UDV church uh, – probably if we disregard their mythological founding right. uh, can just as easily has been found had been founded by the conquistadors attempt of psychoactive repression right because it seems like if if you start um, to convert a lot of uh, indigenous people if you right. and, and they did that by force right. i suppose and they still have their old culture and this right. looks like a melding together it was of, a sy- syncretic these were syncretic religions where they would Take elements of Christianity, take elements of other folk religion, and as well as the indigenous traditions, and they would meld together. But what they also had, the native peoples had to do was keep secret their use of uh, hallucinogenic plants. So in many respects, they camouflaged what they were doing, and it went deeply underground. In some areas, it was expunged altogether, but in other areas, it, it, it just it simply went underground, and you know, and was kept. Away from the prying eyes of the uh, of, of of the Spanish and Portuguese uh, invaders. Yeah, and your study uh, helped, I, I suppose. You 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 uh, demonstrated. Oh, that we I think we, dem- a- we we demonstrated within the context of the UDV that these individuals were healthy. They they were not ingesting a toxic substance. They were in good medical health. They were in very vigorous psychological health. In fact, they had gone, many of them had, and we documented this, had gone through very impressive transformations, positive transformations. Some of these individuals prior to their entry into the UDV ayahuasca church, you know, were very dysfunctional. They were alcoholics, drug addicts, some had had brushes with the law, had served time in prison, they were uh, abusive to their wives, they were not good fathers, uh, uh, irresponsible and reckless in their behavior towards their parents. But after their entry into the UDV and their regular bimonthly consumption of ayahuasca within ceremonial context, they transformed. They, they, They became highly responsible you know their value system you know evolved to a very high point they became very good uh, good spouses they they became very responsible parents very respectful uh, uh, children to their own parents they became far more successful in the, in the working place some became you know some of the leaders and pillars of the local communities so uh, they 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 were outstanding examples of um how uh, how when these compounds are taken under optimal conditions, they can facilitate life-changing positive transformation. And, and optimal conditions in this case is both the drug and the context. So the context yes. is hugely important. There's a, 
there's a moral doctrine in the UDV church, I, sp- I presume. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. So um, absolutely. And, and this is, you know, and again, this is not for, for pleasure, for hedonic purpose, for recreational purpose. This is very serious work. So the structure of the sessions are initially um, individuals are given a cup of the, uh, of the liquid ayahuasca. They hold on to it till everyone has a cup. And then the religious leader says a religious incantation and everyone drinks in unison. And then they sit down <laughs> initially for about 45 minutes to an hour. There's you know, music played. And everyone is in silence, sitting. And then the um, for the next uh, hour and a half to two hours, there are songs uh, individually sung, first by the maestries, and then individuals in, in the congregation will raise their hand, ask for permission to sing one of their religious. These are religious songs, which are usually uh, about the uh, the founders, the mythological founders of the, of the church, or odes to the beauties of nature, and. Um, uh, and and then um, after maybe three hours has elapsed, and individuals are kind of coming back down somewhat, where they can be more receptive to uh, the spoken word and to uh, a sermon, the maestri gets up and will talk about uh, values, the importance of leading a moral life, uh, the importance of um, being good to your family, good to people you work with. Um, so. So we were invited to attend these ceremonies, and of course, it would have been very rude to have turned them down. And of course, we were very curious and uh, very eager to participate as well. And I, I, my Portuguese was limited, and I, I had uh, uh, an, a friend who was fluent in Portuguese who acted as my interpreter. And at one point, towards the end of a session, there was an active dialogue going between the masonry and different members of the congregation it was all in Portuguese. I couldn't follow what was being talked about, but I thought to really understand, I, I really want to know what they're talking about so I could better understand how this church functions and how they facilitate changes in their congregation. And my interpreter had lapsed off into silence. So I leaned over to her and I asked her to tell me, what are they talking about? So she said, well, Charlie, what they're talking about is how important it is that if you say you're going to be someplace at a certain time, you be there. I thought, this is amazing. This is the basis, for, in part, for their success. Be responsible. If you say you're going to do... Especially showing up on time in Brazil must be unheard of. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it... Beca- and I, and to me, it, it kind of explains some, you know, how... Look, when people are under the influence of a hallucinogen, they're in a hyper-suggestible state. Yeah. So if they hear a message about being a better person, living to higher values and higher principles, uh, you know, really incorporating a true morality and being good to your neighbor, it, it, they, they instill that within their very being, into their core, and they become better people. You know, the flip side is if in some other context, like a, uh, some weird... Viking 60, cult in Sweden uh, 6,000 years ago. Or a, a Charles Manson cult in the late 1960s in yeah. California where the cult leader says, do horrible things because these are horrible people and you're in a hyper-suggestible state that, boy, all bets are off. You better watch out. This could get very scary very quickly. But in the context of the UDV, they're receiving a very pro-social message to be better people. And they take it in and they become better people. Yeah. 
It's uh, how often do they do these rituals? Well, it, it, the first and third Saturday evenings of every month, uh, as, uh, along with special religious holidays. That's quite a lot of ayahuasca, too. That's a lot of ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And, and again, our subject in the study, to be in the study, you had to be a member of the UDV for at least 10 years. So uh, no they, they, they consumed a lot of ayahuasca over that time, and yes. they were very high-functioning individuals, some of whom had stories from earlier in life of being pretty low-functioning and not good people. And they, they, like I said, they, they, had, they had transformed into the... As Abraham Lincoln would have said, the better angels of their nature. Yes, and Obama as well, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, so, um, because it is interesting, because you, you don't think that these types of drugs help everyone, right? No, they're not for everyone. No. Absolutely, absolutely. But if, but some people who are called to this experience, uh, it, it can be of great value. Other people really need need to be screened out. Yeah, and you pretty much know if you're called, don't you? I think so. Yes. I think so. And uh, and peer pressure is not the way to go about this. So uh, peer pressure is to be avoided. I think an individual knows within their their, their core if this is if this is their cup of tea, as yes. it were. Ayahuasca tea. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, because yesterday at the lecture, you... Um, you said that this can be potentially uh, the hallucinogens a treatment against alcoholism and drugs yeah uh, psychosomatic disorder that yes. is hypochondria of different right. varieties right. i suppose right. uh, chronic post traumatic stress we dealt with yes. that in the mda mm-hmm. ocd which mm-hmm. i obviously suffer from because uh-huh. i can't stand this uh-huh. uh antisocial behavior yes. works against that uh, autism which surprised me yes well i mean the autism research was um you know, it was with younger people. It was using diagnostic criteria which were different than we use today. So they would refer to many of their subjects as autistic. I've looked through some of the old records and I questioned some of their diagnoses, but they did find in some of their uh, their patients uh, remarkable uh, positive change. I knew this psychologist in California named Gary Fisher who did a fair amount of work at Fairview State Hospital in Orange County where he treated, he had a ward of exceedingly disturbed, institutionalized young people, and he he had you know permission to work with psilocybin and uh, would administer treatments. Some of these young people did not respond, um, but some had you know remarkable responses. He described one teenage girl who was, uh, you know, very, you know, hardly talked at all, was very, very self-destructive, had to wear a helmet because she was a chronic headbanger, had, uh, you know, terrible social skills, um, was, uh, you know, very dangerous to herself, sometimes had to be put in restraints to stop her from hurting herself. He started to have regular psilocybin sessions with her. I think he treated her uh, over the course of maybe a couple of years, 20 times. And then he received a notice from the government basically telling him to cease and desist, that he had to uh, stop all of his treatments and uh, turn over his supply of the drug he was using. So he went to tell her of uh, that they would no longer be able to have such experience, that they'd no longer be able to have this uh, ex- the, 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 these opportunities 
these experiences, these treatment sessions, and she took in, and, and, and during this time, she became far, had become far more functional. She was able to engage in intelligent discourse. She was no longer self-destructive, no longer needed to wear a helmet, no longer headbang, no longer was put in restraints. Her social skills started to improve noticeably, and she had, she was becoming a healthier person. But when she was told that they had to stop the treatment, she, she kind of was silent for a while, and then she said uh, to Gary, she says, but Gary, how will I see God? And it was very, you know, Gary said, you know, was, whenever he thinks about it, he almost tears up how sad that was, how poignant. Yeah. You know, but let me, all this being said, I think today our approach would be not to administer these compounds to children, under you know under any circumstances and be very circumspect about administering them to adolescents, particularly maybe the older adolescents, but under highly under approved, highly controlled context. So this is not I wouldn't want to urge people to administer these drugs to children. But back in the early sixties, Gary Fisher had the opportunity to make some interesting observations, and he found in some, not all, but in some of his uh, patients, pretty dramatic improvements whereas previously no treatment had had any effect whatsoever. That is um, both, um, it makes me glad to hear that it works and, and sad to hear that you're not allowed to make it work. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, right. And then uh, the, the last thing you said that psilocybin could be a treatment against, which is also referring to your latest exper- experiments, is exa- existential anxiety in terminal cancer. Right, right, right. So we, ha- so you know, some of the early research from the 60s, which I found the most compelling, were um, Stan Groff's work at uh, Spring Grove, Maryland, through the University of Maryland, uh, uh, administering LSD and, in some occasions, intramuscular DPT with terminal cancer patients with overwhelming anxiety, depression, demoralization. He had very, very profound results. You know, I, I saw him... And just a short, DPT is... Dipropyl tryptamine. Yes. So it's a related to dimethyltryptamine DMT, but it's only active when injected, and it's never used, you know, today. But I think it was an option that they utilize when individuals could no longer swallow pills because of their if they had oral can- oral, you know, cancers or cancers of the of the throat. But um, Groff did some remarkable work, and uh, I heard him speak 1972. It was very I was very impressed. I was very moved. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I, and, uh, his publications were some of the most moving, moving, uh, scientific articles I've, I've ever read. So in the early 2000s, with the encouragement of my colleagues on the Hefter Research Institute, I developed a protocol to design to look at, uh, advanced stage cancer patients with reactive severe existential anxiety, and we were allowed to proceed with a pilot investigation using a moderate dose level of uh, uh, laboratory-synthesized psilocybin, 0.2 milligram per kilogram, and we found really positive results. First of all, no one had uh, any um, adverse reactions. The only adverse reactions in the course of the study were during placebo sessions, because we had chosen niacin as a placebo. I wouldn't use that again as a placebo. What happens on niacin? Oh, people have a, not, some people don't have any reaction or just a mild tingling. That, that was purpose to induce a mild physiological effect, so they may think they're under yeah. the influence. 
But sensitive people can have a severe flushing reaction and start itching very badly. And we had a couple of poor niacin responses. But insofar as people who received the psilocybin, everybody tolerated it very well. And because the end of life is not a pleasant experience for most people. The end of life is a, is a very frightening prospect for most, most people. And it's filled often with fear and anxiety, depression, demoralization, isolation. And, uh, you know, mainstream medicine and psychiatry often has very little to offer. Although in recent years, the hospice movement has been quite effective. Still, um, for many people, it's a, a time of terrible dread and terrible psycho-spiritual suffering, um, we, fe- we had very good results that uh, even in the, we had a limited, we were approved to do, treat a limited number of people, only 12 people, we still found statistically significant points where we could demonstrate significant drops in anxiety during a six-month follow-up period and improvements of mood over a six-month follow-up period. And I stayed very close with these people, you know, for most of them for the remainder of their lives. And I could see that their overall quality of life improved. Their relationships with family were improving. They're able to heal old rifts. They were able to um, get out a bit more, be more social. I had one woman who uh, had given up going to the uh, to concerts. She loved classical music. She could no longer go because she felt she was too she was too demoralized, too depressed to go. She renewed her subscription to the to the symphony and uh, and took great pleasure in in going to these events. Um, the quality of life noticeably improved. Um, yeah, because that was what you said yesterday. It's not about uh, how you you can't do anything about the end of life, but you can do something about the quality of the animal That's life. right, that's right, that's right. I mean, we're, and again, we're not, we're, the purpose of the treatment is not to impact the cancer per se. We're not trying to cure cancer. That's not at all what's going on here. What we're trying to do is address the, the psychological reaction to knowing you have a terminal disease and you have limited life expectancy. And, um, and I think we were quite... I, I, I was very encouraged by our results, and uh, we have uh, colleagues on the East Coast at NYU and Johns Hopkins who, subsequent to our study, were able to get permission to use a higher dose, and they had more funding. They treated more people, and they got excellent results. They just published in uh, 2016. So I think this field is definitely moving forward. There's clearly a... Uh, uh, a potential for utilizing it in, in this context, also with other treatment groups, popu- uh, patient populations for whom, and I think this is the beauty of this treatment, that it might be helpful in patient populations for whom conventional treatments are not effective. You know, another example is alcoholics, chronic alcoholics, uh, notoriously one of the most difficult and devastating conditions for, for medicine to treat. Medicine does a very poor job. We, we, we haven't really progressed much more than our colleagues from 50 years ago who, if an alcoholic came to them for help, they referred them to a 12-step group. And for some with whom, whom that was a good fit, that might work. But a lot of others, that didn't really do it. We don't have good treatments. But going back to the late 50s with Humphrey Osmond in Canada, he demonstrated that uh, the chronic hardcore alcoholics uh, could be effectively treated with even one session of, 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 of a psychedelic administration, one monitored session. How large a dose? 
he was using, I think, a good, you know, a fairly impressive dose. But um, but be as it may, it was only one experience, but it had such an impact on at least some of these alcoholics that they were able to establish and maintain sobriety for the period of Osmond's follow-up. And this was replicated by Groff's work. Curiously, both Osmond and Groff found that those who had the greatest likelihood of achieving and maintaining sobriety over the long haul were those who, during the course of their many-hour one session, had a powerful psycho-spiritual epiphany, a mystical-level experience. That seemed to be predictive of positive treatment outcome. Well, it would calm me if I was dying to know that God actually right, exists. Right. It, yes. oh, exactly. And Groff also found this, and his colleague Walter Pankey also found this with their terminal cancer patients, that the best treatment outcomes were with those who had that mystical level experience during the course of uh, th- that one session or in some cases two two treatment sessions yes and i should note to the listener also that if you're listening i'm not meaning that god actually exists <laughs> i'm talking about an experience of oneness with the universe right and an awareness let's say that there is a transcendent realm that under normal circumstances we are generally cut off from. Yes. It's quite an astonishing revelation to some people and uh, seems to have a, an intrinsic therapeutic impact. Yesterday uh, at the lecture you told me a story I hadn't heard before actually which is, surprises me about uh, the death of Aldous Huxley. Oh, sure. On the 22nd of November, right? 19, November 22nd, 1963, the same day that John Kennedy was assassinated, Huxley passed away. And Huxley in the last 10 years of his life was fascinated with psychedelics. He only took them a handful of times but had was so profoundly impacted that most of his writing over the last decade was on the potential value of psychedelics in society. I mean, look at his novel Island, you know, a much uh, not, not sufficiently appreciated as one of his greater works. It really lays out his whole understanding of psychedelics and their potentials and also what the risks were. But Huxley, as I said last night, he not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. And when he was dying of throat cancer, arranged with his doctor and his wife, Laura, to have administered 100 micrograms of LSD. And, um, you know, he, uh, he again, he, uh, Laura, who I got to know quite well, described, I mean, he couldn't talk at that point, but he was quite at peace. And, but, but curiously, what a, what a coincidence. On the same day, John Kennedy is assassinated irrevocably changing the course of uh, not only u.s history but really world history um that same day huxley the great visionary also passed on yes under the influence under the influence of 100 micrograms of of lsd that's right which seems like a very nice way to go well he he, uh we never got his trip report but uh to hear laura's description he 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 was quite at peace i hope so if the doors of perception were cleansed everything would appear to man as it is infinite in all its glory william blake and he and he took that that as his title for his great book describing his very first experience with mescaline administered by humphrey osmond in 1953 the doors of perception yes which also led to the naming of the rock group The Doors, I suppose. Yes, I that's right. Yes. That's so correct. there is a clear line <laughs> one can see through the literature of hallucinogens. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much oh, for talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. 
Thank you for listening. Links to Charles's books and studies can be found in the description of this episode on Patreon, where you can also donate some money if you feel like it. I am Aaron Flam. Until next, have a good time unit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.